good morning again. Uh, we're going to pick up in Mark where we left off, in Mark 10, verse 46. This is our last stop on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus, uh, really for the second half of Mark, uh, is on his way down to Jerusalem and then, uh, and then his last week, of course, in Jerusalem. And uh, this is the turn up into the mountain road that goes up from the Jordan River Valley, which is already below sea level at this point, to Jerusalem. So it's 17 miles or so from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, but it go, the road goes up about 3,500 feet. So it's, a, it's not mountain climbing, but it's a, it's a pretty steep road. Anyway, just so you can picture where we're at here. So verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a great crowd, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he, he began to cry and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, we have a lot of voices in our life telling us what to think about who we are and what we're doing here, but God has given us his word, so let's pray that he'd speak to us through it. Father, we know that your word is powerful, and we need clarity. So by your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you illuminate what you've given, that we would understand more clearly the good news of Jesus? And not merely that it is good news in the abstract, but that it is a good word for us, even today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, questions are powerful, right? Somebody asks you a question, it engages you. Uh, this is why three-year-olds ask so many why questions. Why? Why? And no, and no answer cannot be responded to without a why. I mean, you, you can, why is the sky blue? Well, the way the sun hits the air, why? Why? Well, Jesus asks a lot of questions too. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. And Jesus' questions are always powerful. They're, uh, they're pregnant with meaning and possibilities, and our response to them is really telling. And at the center of this story is this question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? If you were face-to-face -face with Jesus, and he said, what do you want me to do for you, what would you ask? What would you answer him? 
I think some of us would ask for answers. Maybe you're not a Christian and you have lots of questions. Maybe you are a Christian and still have lots of questions. Um, you know, no one asks why, the, uh, why a live oak is beautiful or why there are so many flowers. We always ask the hard questions. Why is this happening? Why is the way the world it is, is, why is it the way it is? Why this loss? Why this tragedy? Why this lingering hurt? Some of us, of course, would ask for something to be fixed. But we'd probably be barking up a similar tree, wouldn't we? To fix this ailment. Maybe to fix your finances. Maybe to fix a certain relationship. Maybe to fix something about yourself that you secretly loathe, or maybe not so secretly. So the question really is, how do we respond to Jesus? When he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? And I think Bartimaeus shows us the way. He shows us boldness, trust, and change. Boldness, trust, and change. He's certainly bold, isn't he? Uh, as we said, Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem, and, and we, we read that he's in Jericho in verse 46. Now, Jericho is really the one town on your way up from the Jordan. It's really as you're getting into the mountains that you, you hit this town, and then it's really just some villages along the way, pretty much more or less, till you get to Jerusalem. So it's, a, it's an important town, um, and, and pretty busy. You, we hear about it a few other places along the way, uh, when Jesus tells the, par- the parable about the Good Samaritan. It happens on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, uh, because it's a, it's a mountain pass. So it's a place you, you would stop, get supplies, um, and obviously there is a crowd gathering because they hear that this guy Jesus, this famous rabbi, who might just be Messiah, people are starting to wonder, is on his way through up to Jerusalem. So there's a crowd gathered around, and I think we're tempted to think of it as kind of a paparazzi-style crowd, right? The, I mean, obviously they didn't have cameras, right? But we imagine sort of a lot of this hubbub, a lot of noise. But that would probably be the opposite of what is going on here. This is a crowd. Remember the crowd that's following him that we talked about last week is nervous. There's a lot of anticipation about who Jesus is. And he's a great teacher, right? So however big this crowd is, they're probably trying to listen. I'm sure there's a lot of murmuring going around, but it's pretty quiet. And over the top of that, the hushed tones of that crowd... There's this guy in the back crying, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It would be disruptive. If you were trying to hear what the famous rabbi had to say as he's passing through your town, this guy crying out, have mercy on me, is a little disruptive. No wonder the the crowd is trying to silence him, right? But of course, it is Bartimaeus's boldness that stands out. 
Now, I guess there's different types of boldness. I was thinking about this this week. There is a kind of boldness that is not good. Uh, the word we often use for that is entitlement. Right? A kind of boldness that's unbearable. People who assume because of their place in society, whether that's their, their kind of social standing, their economic standing, their racial standing, that they, ought, that they should be able to assert themselves. Um, years ago, I was, I was stuck waiting uh, in an airport. Our plane had been, had been delayed due to some unforeseen you know, mechanical issues. So they're, they're working on stuff. You know, you never know what's going on, right? Um, so thankfully, we were still in the terminal, not sitting in the plane. And this was, this was a while back before smartphones, so a lot less people had on headphones. It was a lot more just kind of sitting around, people looking at books. Of course, it's a good time to people watch as everybody's a little bit frustrated. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, you, you can watch this. And uh, there was one guy who had, you know, was uh, very fidgety. He was with somebody else. I don't know. He was very, you could see him getting worked up over time. And he goes up to the ticketing agent. Now, I don't know what ticketing agents make. I didn't, I didn't look that up. I'm sure it's not breaking the bank, right? It may pay fine, but I'm sure you're not making a ton. Uh, I'm sure that they also spend their whole day hearing complaints from people. Like, that's their main job, is to, is to, is to be the person that gets yelled at. Um, they also, like, especially with a mechanical issue, does, does that woman who was working behind the counter know anything about what's going on? Like, I, I don't think so, right? I mean, if she knows more than what she's letting on, it's very little more, right? She doesn't have any control of that situation. And as you can see this guy getting worked up. And like some sort of cartoonish version of a movie villain, he goes up and he asks, you know, they start this conversation, and he very loudly says, do you have any idea how much money my time is worth? And it was like, it was so weird, because it was like, really? Like, and you could hear, you know, you could hear the record scratch in that terminal, and everybody looks up. And of course, everybody else that's sitting in the terminal is like, but what are we, you know, like, like, are you more important than we are? Uh, and, you, and I've never seen somebody's affect go flatter than that ticketing agent the moment he said that, right? She could not care less what he had to say at that point, right? Because um, his money, whatever he was worth, didn't make any difference. Um, we know about that kind of boldness, but there is another kind of boldness that comes out of desperation. That I got nothing left to lose. And this is Bartimaeus. He's got nothing left to lose. I, I don't know if Jesus has ever been through Jericho ever before, maybe possibly a few times, but that wasn't where he spent most of his ministry. And when Bartimaeus hears that he's coming through, he must be thinking, this is my chance. If I've ever had a chance, it's right now. And, that, and this is the, you know, Bartimaeus is living out the biblical story. This is the way of the world. 
that while it was created good and we were made for doing good, we've sinned and the world has suffered the catastrophic results of it. Nobody needs to tell Bartimaeus the world doesn't work the way it was meant to. In fact, he's, he's sitting behind the crowd. Did you notice that he's sitting? This is clear because he gets up. Uh, which makes sense, right? He's probably against the building because he doesn't want to get trampled by the crowd. And all he can do is cry out. Out of his desperation, have mercy on me. And that's instructive for us. Because we like the delusions that our lives are under our control. But they're not. We are not under control of our own sin, much less the sin of others. We're not, this world is not under control. I mean, come on, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? I mean, like this, of all delusions that should be shattered, is that we have control of our environment. And he cries out in boldness. And we're scared to do that, I think, in part because we feel like there are certain things we're not supposed to say to God. Uh, maybe that gets communicated to you at some point. <laughs> maybe just out of our innate sense of shame, uh, that conviction grows in us. But if you read the Psalms, how many times does this line come up, how long? It's, uh, grammatically, it's a question, but of course it's... It's really a cry. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall? We hear other cries. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. We hear recognition of sins. I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Over and over again, the Psalms, the stuff of the Psalms, is people crying out in desperation. And that's the kind of boldness that Jesus honors. The boldness of a desperate heart. God isn't scared of your desperation. Not only does he, not, not only does he know it, it's not a secret to God. But he honors it. He wants us to acknowledge it. Not so that we feel worse, but so that we start to see what is true about our situation. So boldness. But it's also a cry of trust. He cries out, son of David, which might seem odd. Now, the, the title Messiah that's floating around, right, anointed one, uh, about Jesus, is, of course, has, has Davidic overtones. It, is, uh, it, it harkens back to King David himself, who was, of course, king. Uh, but he was also a prophet because he spoke for God. Uh, he is, weirdly enough, at times a priest. Even though he's not one of the Levites, he sometimes actually functions as a priest. That's a whole long, 
interesting rabbit trail, but way too long for this morning. But in other words, the, there's, there's a connection between the title Messiah and the one who is the son of David, who is heir to it. But by calling Jesus Christ or Messiah, the anointed one, we're focusing on the office. We're focusing on the, the job, the task. By calling him son of David, he makes the historical connection clear. He highlights his royal authority. Again, these are interconnected ideas, but it is one of, it's a difference of emphasis, right? He's saying, if you're really the one who is the hope of Israel, have mercy on me. If you're the one we've hoped for, the one that we've longed for, have mercy on me. And, and so he's entrusting himself to Jesus, right? He calls out, Jesus tells him to come over, he asks him what he wants, and he wants his sight. Of course he wants his sight. He entrusts himself to Jesus. Trusting Jesus, of course, is at the center of the whole Bible. It is, in some sense, the main question. Why should we trust Jesus? It's a question you, I mean, it's a question you've got to answer, of course, if you're a non-Christian, right? It's, it's an understandable question. But I wonder how often those of us who call ourselves Christians stop and reflect on that question. Why should I trust Jesus? And it's because we don't reflect on that question that our trust is often so feeble. Um, as people were thinking about the son of David coming, as they were thinking about the Messiah coming, some of them were content to think about it in terms of merely politics, merely the power brokers of the day. But what Bartimaeus, I think, is tapping into is the much bigger prophetic story of the one who would bring about the change of the world. The one who would bring with him the reversal of the story of sin, who would bring righteousness, who would bring justice, who would transform the social reality that they live under, who would hearken in the very presence of God, the restoration of all things. Calling him son of David is like a challenge. <laughs> he doesn't say, if you can, like a guy did several stories back. Uh, but it is a say, if you are that, if you are the one that is here to restore all things, then have mercy on me. Restore my sight. And isn't it fascinating that that comes right after the story we looked at last week? where Jesus, for the first time really, explains what his death and resurrection will mean. That he will be a ransom for many. See, I don't, I'm sure Bartimaeus did not know where the story was going. He knew the outlines of it. But what we see already is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem 
to be betrayed, to be crucified, and to rise from the dead. See, Jesus is trustworthy not merely because he might possibly be bringing about that big story, but the proof is in what he does with his life. The trustworthiness of Jesus is that he gave his life as a ransom for you. That he has paid the price for you. But more than that, has been raised up for you to restore all things. To heal you and I, body and soul. This is why Jesus is trustworthy. This is why Jesus is not scared of our needs. is because he will give everything for them. to ransom us back. That is why you can trust him. And look, trust, trust looks, well, I guess like a lot of things. But one of the things that is kind of fascinating is we see in this story a man who receives immediately the thing he wants. But we know that that is not always the case. The thing you want fixed may or may not happen today. Certainly the things that the disciples want are not going to happen this trip to Jerusalem. In fact, what many of the people along the way in Jesus' life are discovering is that the thing that they want They've only partially understood what needs to be fixed. That they need to be reoriented. They need to see it in a different light. That what we want fixed in our lives is usually only the tip of the iceberg. And there's much more below the surface that needs work. The work that Jesus came to do is not merely to fix the problem you have today but to change you, to change your heart. Yes, to raise you up one day. But after he's changed your heart. And we look for lots of, we trust in lots of different other things, right? We, we live in a psychological age, right? Uh, we think there are all kinds of ways in which we, if we simply understand who we are psychologically, we will be delivered. We live, closely related to that, in an age of self-empowerment. And if we think, well, if I learn how to assert myself in all these different ways, how to get control of what's going on in my life, I will be delivered. We live in a technocratic age where we think, well, if we just study it hard enough, we will find the solutions to everything that ails us. We, of course, live in an economic age as well to think that if we only fix what we, what, you know, the money problem we have, the advantages or disadvantages we have, that everything will be delivered. Now, look, the thing is, there's a little bit of truth in all of those. I mean, maybe even more than a little bit, right? I mean, there are things to learn in psychology through technology. There are ways we need to learn uh, about how we interact with people that, that could be changed. There are, you know, certainly economic health can be helpful. 
But the change that Jesus came to bring is much more profound than all that. And it sweeps all those things into its wake. We need to trust him. We need, in our desperation, to recognize the one who is really trustworthy, to bring about the profound change in our hearts, in society, in the world itself, that we cannot possibly manage. That is what it means to trust him. To throw yourself on Jesus. But it also implies change. What's interesting is Bartimaeus gets his, what he wants. He gets his request. He gets his eyesight. And what does Jesus tell him in verse 52? Go your, own, go your way. Right? Go your own way. You've been healed. Your faith has healed you. Go on, do whatever you want. And what does he do? Did you notice? He follows Jesus. Now, I don't know what was on his list of things I would do if I had my sight back. Right? Uh, maybe he's a practical guy. And he's like, I could be much more productive, be more well off. Maybe he's, maybe he's more of an artist, right? And can't wait to sort of drink in the sights. Uh, I don't know. The, the Jordan River Valley is beautiful. Something to see. I don't know what his list was, but that moment he receives his sight back, he realizes something is more important even than his sight. It's what Jesus is doing. It has changed his priorities. He's starting to follow Jesus. It is the mercy that Jesus has had on him that has changed him. There's, a, there's a, a well-known line from the Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained. This is uh, Portia who says that. She goes on later and says, It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and it him that takes. The mercy of Jesus has changed him. It's reprioritized the way that he sees himself in the world. And that kind of change, look, from... From one angle, it can be costly. That's true. And Jesus is pretty blunt about this, right? He, he says, look, take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound particularly great. He tells, uh, at other times, he says to count the cost of following him. So, yes, I mean, like, there's aspects of that change of priorities that is difficult. But on the other hand... What Bartimaeus sees is that that is hardly a burden. That he, he, he's been, his priorities are so transformed that it's like, what, what else is worth investing my time in than to follow Jesus? He's excited to follow him, to leave behind all those other things. It's an invitation. Jesus' healing is an invitation to him to see the world in a different way. One that is not full of possibilities and costs, but that is full, 
uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, one that's not full of costs, but one that's full of possibilities, that's full of opportunities, that's overflowing with his mercy and love. This is not a world of scarcity, it is a world of plenty. It is a hint at the resurrected, renewed creation that Jesus is bringing in. And it has changed the way Bartimaeus sees the world. So what are you holding back? What am I holding back? Why wouldn't I want this? The change is not so... You know, one way to read this is like, okay, I should change careers and go be a missionary. (laughs) Or I should change careers and go become a minister. No. I mean, maybe some of you should, I don't know. But (laughs) it's much more pedestrian a change than that, but is much more profound. It is about seeing how significant Jesus really is. Not only in some cosmic sense, but to me, to who I am, to the way that I see myself in the world. It changes all of those relationships. It may not involve changing the relation, a relationship, it may change the way that relationship works. It may not involve a change of job, it, may, it will change the way you do that job. If you're a student, it may not change the classes you're taking, but it will change the way you approach those. It will change the way we approach our friendships. It will change everything from the inside out. So, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want him to fix? Are we just asking for small things? Are we just asking to tinker with this situation, with this particular circumstance, with this thing that has all my attention today? Or do we we want him to fix something bigger? Do you want him to fix you body and soul from the inside out? And if you're asking for answers from him, what answers are you asking? What are you asking for? Do you want to know why? Do you want to ask small questions? And are you willing to hear the answer? Because all the hard questions we ask of God are not answered simply by saying, well, look, you look at all these contingencies and how all this lines up. God never answers that way. The answer to why this, why me, why this situation is not, oh, because it'll all work out this way. It never is. The answer to why this is, I will enter in. I will take the burden of sin and evil on me. I will walk 
in your shoes. But more than that, that I will destroy death by my own death. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Father, we pray that you would teach us boldness. That you would teach us to trust in you. And that by that you would change us. So that our priorities would not simply be affirmed by what you give, but that they would be transformed, that we would be changed into the likeness of Jesus, into what is enduring. For those that are struggling for answers, Lord, show us the answer you have given, the word that you have given, your son. For those that are struggling with circumstances that need fixing, show them your son, risen from the dead, whose new creation is waiting. Show us what we are in you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.